Hi, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to tell you about our upcoming QCon software development conferences. We will be back in person with QCon London this April 4th through the 6th and online with QCon Plus between May 10th and 20th. These are both great opportunities to learn from the world's most innovative software engineers from across many domains as they share their real-world implementations of emerging trends and practices. You can learn more about the events at qconferences.com. We hope to see you there. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the InfoQ podcast. I'm Thomas Betts, lead editor for architecture and design at InfoQ and a software architect at BlackBot. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Harmala for discussion about a conversational approach to software architecture. Andrew is a technology principal at ThoughtWorks. His focus is on helping software teams and the organizations they work within to deliver valuable outcomes in the most efficient way. Andrew is also a trainer for domain-driven design on the O'Reilly training platform. Andrew, welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Thanks for having me, Thomas. So you recently wrote an article, it's posted on martinfowler.com, we'll have a link on the show notes, entitled Scaling the Practice of Architecture Conversationally. It's been shared around InfoQ and within my company, and I can say personally that it's led to some great discussions about how to be an effective architect and how to structure an architecture organization for success when you need to scale out with many, many development teams. So we're probably all familiar with the idea of the ivory tower architect sending down thou shalt directives, and this kind of goes against that idea. So can you describe to our listeners your ideas about having conversations about architectural designs and decisions rather than a monologue coming from the architect? So first thing to point out is the conversations part is completely taken from Bruce Mallon. So Bruce Mallon talks a lot about this, and I came across Ruth through the DDD community, and so she's got some stuff. I'm not sure it's still on the internet because I think she took some stuff down because she let me know that I was linking to things that were dead links. But she had this whole alternative take on architecture. One of the key points behind it was that architecture is a conversation. And so therefore, there's the outputs and the outcomes, which are decisions and designs and all of these kind of things. But one of the key things is the kind of the conversation and the curation of that conversation and the point in time in which that conversation takes place and all of these other things. And so... That really struck a chord with me, and specifically that struck a chord with me because, as you mentioned, the nature of architecture is changing because the nature of the way we deliver software is changing, the nature of how we structure our teams is changing because of the way that cloud-based platforms let us do things. In all of these different things and all of these phrases like autonomy and microservices and distribution and with COVID distributed teams and all of this kind of stuff is happening, things are getting split up into smaller pieces. And the practice of architecture has always been important. But in my opinion, as you split up into more smaller pieces, getting those divisions as good as possible at the time you do it is even more important. More small pieces, more decisions about splits and stuff and the decisions as to what you do in those pieces. I spend my life avoiding being an ivory tower architect, but as the person responsible for the architecture, however it gets delivered, I was feeling more and more kind of stressed and under pressure to figure out how to scale myself, to be in all the right places, to be in all of these conversations, to give people the advice DDD helped a lot, you know, around about like kind of figuring out to put domains and map domains to teams and aggregates to microservices and all these kind of things. But it was still hard to be in all the right places, all the right times. And the thing that kind of coalesced it for me is there's a quote from Alberto Brandolini, which is something like the thing that goes into production is the developer's assumption about the domain. And that's the same thing, right? The architecture that goes into production is not your beautiful diagram or the thing that you thought you'd explain to them. It's what they took from that. And so that started keeping me awake at night, right? So I was like, oh my God, how do I know that this stuff is anything I do relevant? And so then I started looking around for something and then I kind of came across all the stuff that became this article. Mainly it was me scratching my own itch and helping myself sleep at night. And then over time, I kind of put bits together to make it work. That's kind of where we got to. 
Yeah. And so the way you wrote about it is that you get to the idea of the advice process, which I love. It's nice and simple. It has one rule that anyone can make an architectural decision, but there's a qualifier. Can you explain those to our listeners? So again, this is mine. This is just bits I've glued together. But so the advice process comes from trust organizations. So there's a book by Fred Leloux where he talks about it and he did loads of examples and did lots of case studies. He noticed that in trust organizations, decision-making is decentralized or completely spread around. So people are empowered and trusted to make decisions. But then lots of the companies that do this, and one of the examples is, a, I think it's a Pakistani nuclear company. So they run nuclear reactors and they use the advice process to make decisions. And so obviously... Just anyone can make decisions is a bit risky, especially if you run nuclear reactors. So they have the process that, like you said, the rule is anybody can make any decision that they need to. But the caveats are, but they first need to seek advice from the people who will be impacted and the people who have expertise. And so that then leads on to the fact you need to identify who's impacted and you need to identify who has expertise. And that alone makes whoever's taking the decision or you know needs the decision to be made, they have to think about. What is the impact? Who do I need to speak to? Who has expertise, et cetera, et cetera. So they need to start engaging with the problem. And that, when used for software architecture, turns out to be a nice kind of ground level framework for just getting people to do at least the bare minimum of things that you typically do as an architect without really thinking about. And when you talked about having all these little teams separated out, one of the benefits of that is you get very focused and good at only needing to understand your little view of the world. But as part of a microservices architecture, you're not standing alone. You're part of a big system. You're part of this bigger architecture. So those people impacted, you might not be aware of. Is that where the architecture who kind of jumps around and sees the bigger picture is involved and can help find and identify those people that are impacted and get the people experience to help make the decisions? A hundred percent. And so this is the conversations piece because how in my experience it kind of turns out is the architect is still playing the role, but you're more facilitating and you're curating these conversations, right? So to begin with, you're helping people realize that they probably need to speak to this person, this person, this person, and this person, and you kind of direct them off and, and ask them to go and have the conversations. You can also kind of seed that with questions and stuff. So instead of kind of deciding things, you can ask the questions and make people engage with those and things. So therefore, maybe the decision making is spread out, but the architectural thinking still stays, not to a great extent, but it doesn't disappear from the person who's the traditional architect. But maybe they're curating and, like I said, to kind of tackle the Alberto Brandolini problem, which is like, you know, how do you know? It's not just in your head and you're telling people. You're engaged in the architectural and the decision making process with everybody who's impacted. So therefore, the chances of there being fewer mistakes and fewer misconceptions of what the decision is, because it's coming from a different place, right? And so the people who are leading the decision process are more, their skin is in the game and they can engage more fully and completely with it. A lot of the developers I work with and I enjoy working with that have kind of the same mindset is don't just tell me what to do, but I want to understand a little bit of why we're doing this. And sometimes those why decisions are the architectural decisions. Why are we using this framework? Why are we using this platform? Why are we using these patterns? If you engage the people in the conversation and some of that why sinks in a little bit more rather than I was just told to do this. Is that what you're seeing too? A hundred percent. And this is kind of to bring in one of the pieces that go with it. It's why ADRs are really nice. So the reason I started bringing in ADRs, because I'd use ADRs before, but ADRs give an awesome structure to things. And I've experimented with various standard templates for ADRs, but the nice templates of ADRs are, you know, like it's the point in time, so it makes it clear when this happened. It makes you kind of think about the context. So what's the context of this decision that's happening? What are the options you considered? And what are the consequences of that decision? And again, that's a standard kind of thinking framework, which I use as an architect. And so if you give that template to someone, then they can think about the same things, right? So what are the consequences? What is the context? What are the options that we can consider? 
And lots of the time, bringing them back to the advice process, you'll get people who begin to do this and they'll just, they'll preform an opinion. So they'll go off and ask the people who they know will give them the opinion that they want to hear or the advice they want to hear. So what we end up doing, and again, it's conversation curating. You're like, right, but who should you speak to who will disagree with you? Because the advice process, you don't need to agree with them. You're not looking for consensus, but you are looking to hear their viewpoint and hear their opinions because it's advice, right? They're not telling you what to do. You get to decide. But if you seek out people with different opinions and people with broader perspectives or longer historical perspectives, then it becomes more of a learning process as well as you get good decision making, but also the person making the decision is being exposed to in the context of their problem that they need a solution for. They're being exposed to all this stuff, which when we take decisions you know, outside of a team or maybe with a team, but it's still the decision lies with us as the architect, the engagement is lower, but now the engagement is high, right? Because they're like, oh, I didn't realize. And sometimes they change their minds and sometimes they don't, but it's based on the context that they find themselves in. And then you get better ownership and you get, you know, the delivery of the thing is far more likely to happen. And it's faster. and It's not kind of done begrudgingly. And there's loads of knock on side effects, but it comes from the trusting, right? So you, the reason you build the trust is because people you trust care more about stuff, right? Right. You're not going to do this simply because it gives you better developers or happier developers, but happier developers and people who are more engaged are going to write better code or going to think more about it. And they're going to come back and ask, it's like, I might not need to do a full ADR on this, but I can at least go and talk to those people again and say, hey, I just want to get your opinion. Little point to go back on acronym police, ADR, architecture. Architectural decision record. Yeah. So the classic Michael Nygaard stuff, they've kind of taken off and like there's a million different varieties. But yeah, the ones I go back to, the, like, there's just the standard Michael Nygaard stuff. So again, not, I didn't invent them, completely someone else's thing. But they're just nice and they're small. They're not an onerous thing. You're not saying, please update this gigantic software architecture document or blah, blah, blah. It's just a thinking tool, which by as a side effect gives you this beautiful kind of historical view of your architectural decisions. But that comes from the people who are writing the software. And that's awesome. And because they're written down, then the other bit that we've added to the advice process or I've added to the advice process is advice process says seek advice. In this, what we do is we say, right, your responsibility is to write down that advice. You don't need to agree with it. You don't even need to follow it, but you do need to write it down. You know, when you look back at an ADR six months later and you're like, right, this decision was bad. Did we know that it was bad and did we just ignore it? And that I've come back to that again and again. It's happened four or five times, which is a consultant is nice because then the client can see, did we think about it? Or we didn't think about it. You know, there's a nice kind of trail of the context and the conversation as opposed to just, we pick this, you know, we pick Log4j or opposed to something else. That's nice. So it feels like it's a consumable architecture as opposed to just like a list of facts. And it's not just boxes and arrows. You don't know why you drew those boxes this way or those arrows that way. Where do you think ADRs fall on the heavy to lightweight scale of how much work goes into them? Is this something that takes a half hour, I just dash it off? Is it done over... A period of days or weeks while I think about and muddle on a decision, does it vary based on how big that decision is? It totally depends. So the idea is they're smaller, but they can live for quite a long time. So it's nice. So with the rule of thumb I've found out, and I think it's in the article, typically if someone's running a spike, it'll probably turn into an ADR unless the spike goes, this was a disaster, we're not doing that. Or if someone's picking a new tech, and they'll probably write the context and they'll probably brain dump the kind of options that they're going to look at. And even then, so we then expose that as draft. So at the current client, we've got it set up so that they're done as Jira tickets, which some people will probably recoil in terror. But it's nice because we can then listen to it and people can see it. We've got it on a dashboard. The fact that that's been created as draft, people get pinged. They can see the title. We spend a lot of time or I spend a lot of time helping people curate the titles because it shouldn't be like something woolly and it should state the decision right so it shouldn't be like if you don't want to read the whole adr i can just read the title and it tells me what the decision is so that will trigger people 
you know, so lots of the people who are affected or who have an opinion, they'll come out the woodwork really fast. But also other things I'll learn, and I learned this over my career and I'm still learning it, but people who are new to decision-taking will take what they think is a decision. And it's actually seven decisions all crushed into one. So when they write it down, if it's too hard to write or it's too big, before they've even formed the opinion of what it is in their heads, when they do that, they're like, oh, this is too big. And then again, if the draft is published or even if it's like in progress, me and my fellow architects, my client and previous clients can go, okay, cool. You're trying to decide three things at once. And actually one of those is an NFR or CFR as we call them in ThoughtWorks. So right, there's an implicit CFR, which we aren't aware of. So we need to pull that out. There's also some, maybe some design principles, which are implicit or, you know, whatever. So the sooner people can get that thinking out loud down, then you can start responding to it. And then the conversations are helping themselves, right? Curating themselves. So. The answer is it depends. I'm a consultant, so that's kind of part of the territory, right? The answer is always it depends. It's an architecture discussion. Exactly, right? So like I say, the key thing is if you think of everything, because secretly, again, it's a learning tool. Everything's a learning tool. So getting people to share where they're at and then all of this stuff, you're like, oh, this is awesome opportunity to teach and to share knowledge and to get people to grok this stuff. So, Since you mentioned CFRs, cross-functional requirements or non-functional requirements, that seems like one of those things you wouldn't want to put down at one individual team is deciding that that comes back, but you have a way of identifying. Yeah. The things that kind of typically come back are tech strategy that does kind of sit with some architectural level or from higher up enterprise architecture or CTO in our case. But what's nice is it comes down and then it's like, we try and make that embedded into the ADR. So if an ADR is kind of looking like it's going to go contrary, why? Maybe that's right. Maybe the strategy is right, but for this instance, it's wrong. Ditto for principles. We source these principles with the team, but again, they're kind of that's a facilitated conversation. And then we use the ADR process to see if are the principles standing up or are our principles getting a bit out of date and do we need to re-up them and CFRs. So again, on previous projects, there have been a list of CFRs which we've turned into testable CFRs and put them into backlogs in Jira or whatever. And then we had sections in the ADR which is like applicable CFRs and applicable principles. On this current client, they don't have CFRs. I thought that's crazy, but actually there's a level of maturity, which means they kind of are doing them without needing them. But sometimes implicit behind an ADR will be a CFR. So then we as the architects pull it out and go, right, okay, so this is the CFR. Let's agree that. And for those kind of things, we do need agreement, like log format, because we need an agreed log format, right? We can't have 17 different flavors. Let's agree that. But then within that, different teams can decide to implement that log format in whatever ways they want. Right? So we're kind of separating out the bits that architecture do own and are across the piece from the individual implementation of those things. Yeah, I think you mentioned when people don't have CFRs or those documents of here's how we do stuff, you always have a software architecture. It's just whether it was intentional. And I like the ADRs, that paper trail saying, these are the decisions we made that got us here. It wasn't just arbitrary and we just happened upon it. Sometimes that gets lost. And so I like the idea of the ADR being as lightweight as possible so that I can make it part of the process. Like you said, if you do a spike, like let's figure out what we should do. Here's the outcome. I think a lot of people struggle with what's the outcome of the spike? Is it functional code? This is a good example of that. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing. If it comes out the back of a spike, the ADR writes itself. You know, if it's a nice spike with nice acceptance criteria, you know, like so the Thor's BAs are all over this. So like you're not doing a spike for fun. You're doing a spike to learn something. What do we want to learn? If you've learned something and it's worthwhile, you know, you're going to do something with it, that goes straight into an ADR, like it's really easy. And then people see the value of spikes because sometimes they don't, they do, you know, they're like, I'm not really sure why I'm doing this, but if that's where you're going, then that's really good. So this seems very well suited for distributed teams. That's kind of the thing. It's like it spreads it out. And one of the air quotes features 
of autonomous teams is that they are allowed to make their own implementation decisions. Like, do I want to use Go or Node or .NET or Java to write my service? Can you do the same approach for those type of decisions that might not be architectural necessarily, just design decisions or implementations? Exactly. It's interesting. So having done this for three or four times now, there's always a way in. To begin with, it's like you roll this out. Step one, people are like, I haven't just been given autonomy because that sounds like crazy talk. No one would give me that. So initially there's a lull. Then people realize that we're actually serious. So then they're like, okay, cool. And sometimes one client, what the thing was, there was this pent up frustration that people wanted to just choose in certain circumstances because they had to write an ADR, they had to justify it. But certain circumstances, they wanted like a kind of bounded buy, right? They wanted for their circumstances to change something. Like one team on a previous client wanted to use functions like lambdas. And so we wrote the ADR and there was a lot of to and fro. And then people were like, okay, but like startup time is bad, you know, all this kind of stuff. So all of the stuff came out and we had a really nice educated discussion about lambdas. And the decision was actually, this isn't the standard architecture. It's not where we're going, but for this case, it's cheaper. It makes more sense. We don't care about slow startup time and we'll learn a bunch of stuff. So that was good. Another team actually wanted to move backwards and go back to a slightly slower, safer tech as well, because they were like, we're being forced into this architecture, which doesn't really fit for our circumstances. So they did that. So you'll see that the other people that typically really get it and really like it is lots of the work we do is moving teams from build with a separate support team to build and run. So that then places this kind of DevOps mindset, desire, a kind of need onto people. And then you'll see that what used to be the support team or the infrastructure team kind of retreating back into more like a delivery platform type thing. They will use ADRs to share and get input in to, you know, we're going to start changing your load balancers. Does anyone have any feedback, thoughts on this? We're suggesting, you know, we've done a bunch of research from what we know that we're going to move from ELB to, you know, network level load balancers or whatever. These are the pros and cons. And then there's a forum for that kind of stuff to come out, right? So then you'll see lots of kind of infra level stuff and you'll just see standard design decisions, right? Again, typically the ones you'll see first, and I've seen all the times I've done this, the first ones you'll see will be, my team needs to do an interface with another team. So let's sit down and figure it out. And so they'll kind of be, you know, how are we going to do it? What's the nature of it, et cetera, et cetera. Then maybe you'll see some internal stuff, but the first ones will be, like you say, these ones where the teams are trying to clarify and draw a line on their interactions between each other. And again, that's nice, right? Because sometimes as an architect, you're like, God, I wish teams would worry about this more. So this gives them a forum to have those conversations and talk about that stuff. And you see all of those different things. And you don't have to curate them, but you do sometimes need to go, that's an, I need to make a meme, actually. So what I'll do is I'll hang out on Slack and go, that's an ADR. Because people will be talking about stuff and you'll be like, this is an ADR. And it's caught on at my current client. So the CTO will be like, that's an ADR. <laughs> and then a few days later, you'll see an ADR pop up because someone will write it down. One of the points you mentioned is these are all time specific, that the ADR is documented and has a timestamp. Like this was made on January 15th, 2022, and it's got people associated with it to say who was involved in the decision, who did you talk to? That seems really useful because the example you gave of we decided to use lambdas seems very much of at the time, these were the situation, but it's a year later someone brings it up and if they just said, well, we don't do lambdas because we don't trust functions or I don't know why. But if it's documented, you can go back and evaluate, say, we want to evaluate again, should we use them now? Because these new enhancements might have solved some of the problems that we had identified in the past. Exactly. So this is the thing, the thing I emphasize, and again, it's not me, this comes from the Michael Nygaard's original post about it. There are point in time, and like you say, doing with the advice process, then you've got all of this context and the surrounding advice and what people thought at the time. 
and stuff changes. I mean, like, so every time I do anything with any cloud-based platform, sometimes we'll put a story on a backlog. And by the time it gets to the top of the backlog, the reasons why we thought this was good have changed because the cost of it is completely upended or it's added features that we didn't even know existed at the start or whatever. So that's good to kind of make sure it's tied in time. So we've kind of got statuses. So I mentioned draft. So the statuses we have, ICR, draft, proposed. So proposed is kind of just like we're looking for advice. It's definitely probably not going to, you know, we're not still writing it. Then accepted means it's like we've made a decision. Adopted means we've actually put it into code and it's running in prod. But then we have superseded or retired. So sometimes we'll make a decision and in various pieces of work I've done, we put a timer on it. We're like, right, we know this is moving fast. So let's put a clock on it and say, we'll come back to it in three months. We'll come back into six months. And other times we made a decision, which has been the right decision for tons of reasons. You know, typically the big ones. So there was one around about Active Directory and deciding whether or not to share an Active Directory across a bunch of stuff. And so at the time, that was the right decision for cost reasons, you know, security reasons, risk reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Then at some point, so the right decision was taken to use this shared thing. Later on, someone decided to do something to the shared thing, which for that point was, again, a valid decision to do the right thing. But it invalidated this previous decision, which is a thing, right? So and in the old days, you're like, why did we make this previous decision? We could go straight back and we could see with diagrams, with commentary, who do we speak to? What's the history of this thing? We could see that. And that was what would normally be like, you know, a witch hunt for why did we make this bad decision? It wasn't. It was the right decision at this time, followed by a right decision at the later time, and things changed. And that for right up to CTO level was valuable because it's like, right, okay, we were doing the right thing based on what we knew. We're now changing. So things have to change. We have to replan and rework. But it short-circuited all of the kind of why and navel-gazing and all this kind of stuff and just got back to, okay, cool. Right, we're moving forward. We're doing things. We have to replan. We have to re-engineer and retool stuff. So it's just nice. And that's the thing. If you have all this beautiful stuff written into the ADR, it's like, I remember exactly what we were thinking. Or there was a blind spot. There was a thing we didn't know about because we hadn't Googled properly. One of those pieces of advice that I heard later in my career is assuming someone's built a system based on the best knowledge they had at the time, that they made the best decisions with the given information and the fact that the ADR can actually capture that. And you can understand like they weren't an idiot. They did the best they could. It doesn't make sense anymore. And saying this is a time to adapt and revise that. I want to make sure we cover these today in the podcast. Four supporting elements. We've talked a lot about decision records. The other three, I'm going to list them and we can come back and talk to them. A time and place for conversations, which is the architecture advisory forum. A light to illuminate a unified goal, which is team sourced architectural principles. And then a landscape and current climate sensing tool, which is your own tech radar. So let's start with the purpose of the advisory forum. So the advisory forum's like, that's the most fun bit. And I look forward to, it's always a bit scary because it's called advice forum on purpose, right? So it's, everybody has a architectural review board and lots of people, I think, I think this is one of the, like the near enemies that I think lots of people read this and fall into. I think they're like, oh, we already have one of these. You do, but it's not exactly the thing. And the key thing is this is where the advice process happens, right? So people aren't coming to look for approval. They aren't coming to look for consensus. They're looking for advice. So current client, I was warned by one of the architects. They were like, we set one of these up before and we could never come to a conclusion. And I said, I think it's going to be different because we're not looking for conclusions. We're just looking for discussion. And freeing that up, the discussions were awesome. The client that gave me this advice there were tons of smart, smart, smart people, right? But then because they were all smart and they all, you know, had like 80% of the view, they couldn't ever come to a conclusion. But we sidestepped that problem and combined with things like point in time decisions, small decisions, so it's easy to come back and remake them and all of this kind of stuff. Or right-sized, right? Some decisions are big, but making them as small as they can be. 
it totally works. And again, we've kind of, I think it's in the article, we've got like a standards kind of standing agenda. What's typical is, so we've got my current client, we're trying to make it as async as possible. So we do as much preparation for as possible, as much tidy up afterwards as possible, but it still gets like 40 plus people for half an hour a week, which for a client that's not desperate to have meetings, that's good. And I've been told that people are coming because there's a value to them being there, right? There's a value to the conversation. And not just the people who are contributing, but the people who are listening. And again, it's the whole architecture thing. Hearing people think out loud and share history, et cetera, et cetera, is super valuable. So that's that one. The next one is the principles. Like again, everybody's probably got principles. The nice thing about this is it makes sure that the principles are executable and they're giving value because there's always principles which are like kind of like everyone agrees, but they're not really helping me decide of A versus B versus C. So this makes them executable because you're giving the principles, putting them in the hands of the dev teams who are doing the work. And if it's an irrelevant principle, they'll tell you. If it's an out-of-date principle, they'll tell you. I think it's in the article again. There's a thing which we've evolved, which is it's not invalid to, to do something which is contrary to a principle, but you need to write down in the ADR why it is better to do this the other way. Makes you think, right? So why are we doing this thing? And so that's that bit. And then the last bit, the tech radar, which is A, it's just tech radars are awesome for, again, getting people to see where they are, see what everyone else is doing, cope with the fact that, like you said, you want teams to a certain extent well, as much extent as makes sense, you want teams to be able to pick the tools for their job, right? I mean, it's in Accelerate, right? So Nicole Forsgren and co have said, one of the ways to make yourself into an elite performing Dora type organization is teams pick the tools that are right for them. But then people are like, there's so many tools, I don't even know what's going on. How many different logging things and frameworks have we got, right? Do a tech radar, let's find out. And it's super easy to do. The instructions are on the website, it's free. And it's fun. You're having conversations about what tech are we using? What platforms are we using? What practices are we using? What frameworks are we using? And so the ThoughtWorks Tech Radar is aimed at the standard rings are aimed at kind of us and looking at the industry. And I'm not sure this is in the article. What we change it to is a kind of progression, historical progression through the company. So the one in the center, which is actively looking to retire or something like that. The next one out is we're using it. We're not actually actively retiring it. But the one beyond that is probably the current pick. And the one on the outside is things we're actively looking at. You know, so it's not someone did a Google search, but it's like, you know, a team is proof of concept in this or they're playing with this, you know, so therefore you can say, oh, interesting, that other team is doing this thing. Let's go and speak to them. So again, it helps the advice process. It helps the advice seeking, et cetera, et cetera. I like the idea of that creating sort of guardrails. Don't give you the blank slate. Like here's some things to choose from. Or if you have a new one that you're thinking about, here's a way to evaluate. Does it come into the possible stack? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like the rules are like, if you want to bring it on the radar, then you've got to write an ADR, right? So then you're putting people back into the thought process, which someone would do. And this is nice. Like evaluating tools, whenever I've evaluated tools as an architect, I always go to the team because I'm so far away from doing these things these days that what I will think is a minor problem, they'll be like, man, that sucks because it gets in my way like every 15 minutes. Again, you're giving them that power, but you're like, right, you need to think about the cost. You need to think about how many people with these skills are available. You need to think about, you know, the licensing, all of this kind of stuff. So you can, but like, you know, pay attention to all this stuff, right? And then you can circle back to the architecture forum. I like that idea of don't make decisions in that meeting. Don't come to a conclusion. It's about the advice, it's about the conversation. I mean, architecture is all about, it depends, understanding the trade-offs and identifying those. And so... When I've been in meetings that have been that conversational aspect, you'll see somebody sit back and listen and listen and listen and listen. And then their camera comes on. They make one little comment that no one else has been thinking of. And everyone's like, that's a really good idea. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there's a bit near the bottom. It's like how to fail. Things you end up policing, 
people will still think that they are having, even if you keep telling them, they'll still be looking for others to approve. And you'll hear people in their language, they'll be like, do we all agree? And I'm like, we don't need to agree. Stop trying to agree. Why are we trying to agree? Or is everybody happy? If you're not happy, that's probably good, right? Because then, like you say, you'll get someone who'll come in with this like lightning bolt of, yeah, but what about, and you're like, oh God, yeah, we forgot about the fact that, you know, we can't upgrade this thing because of X or whatever, right? The invitees are also important. So everywhere I've done this, product people come because product, you know, it's really early warning for A, for them to know about cool stuff that's coming out of tech. B, it's good for them to head stuff off at the past before devs go off and do something without, you know, the context that the product might give them. But C, it also helps them kind of remind or provide that perspective. So for example, if there's a cost element to something, they can be like, right, remember our scaling strategy is to go here. So therefore, if there's a per user cost of licensing something, that blows my you know option A out of the water. So that's really cool. And so they see stuff and they know what's going on. It's also awesome for security. So, you know, security, everyone's trying to get security higher up the food chain, right? And get them earlier on and shift security left. This is almost like before a story's even been written, right? Security can be there and go, mm, that's, you know, GPL version one, is, that's just never going to fly for these reasons. And then people, because it's the conversation and everyone's learning, people are learning about security and they're like, oh yeah, maybe they're not jerks. Maybe they actually are worried about stuff that we need to worry about. And they've just explained, as opposed to saying no, after I've put all this work in, They've said you really need to think about at the very start. Like the richness of the conversations is amazing. And then, like you say, the last bit, when it beds in, I spend most of my time thinking, right, who's not talking? Why are they not? Is there anything that they can do? And then behind the scenes, curating stuff. Because it'll start off, it'll be the typical voices. Then you'll hopefully see some people who are like the leads of most of the teams. But then you'll start seeing people who have strong opinions in those teams and this is why advice process is good to write. There's no right or wrong answers. There's no yes or no. The power dynamic changes. So there's still the loudness of voices, which you need to watch out for. But if you want a high performing organization comprised of high performing teams, you want the safety to have opinions. You want the safety to disagree. And this is a safe space for that, right? As long as you look after it, as long as it doesn't become, you know, the three big architects battling it out in front of each other. Yeah, I think one of the things we talk about in InfoQ on a somewhat regular basis is the role of the architect and whether you're just the person who has all this technical knowledge and you can make the decisions. A lot of times it is you need to be able to communicate and you need to be able to communicate at different levels. I think it's the architect elevator by Gregor Hockey. I know we've mentioned that before on the podcast, the idea of I need to talk to the developers doing the work all the way up to the product managers, to the CTO, whoever it is, being able to change your story. Are you saying that now the architect needs this role to be almost a facilitator to help guide discussion and help the advice and conversations happen? I personally think that a great deal, yes. But like, so one key thing, and it's hopefully it's clear in the article, I'm not saying this is the way to do all architecture. This is how I do architecture every time I get an opportunity. You could then say I'm a consultant. So the whole point is I'm not around. So there's a vested interest for me and my clients in me making myself redundant and building the capability of architecture as much as possible for my clients. But it works really well because there is, at some point, this doesn't go right to the CTO, although current client, the CTO, whenever she can, comes to the meetings. And ditto for previous clients, well, actually. The elevator piece is taking that kind of stuff and playing it back and making it clear at different levels of the organization is so important. And I think, for a great extent, this gives you the context and the detail and the confidence in the support of the people who are doing it. When you're higher up the architect elevator, you're frequently asked to be very categorical about things. And if you're like, I'm not sure how much support I have for the teams who are actually going to deliver this, right? But you'll be able to reflect that because you'll have seen that. Or just, you know, the general feeling or the general acceptance of ideas and all this kind of stuff. So it works. It frees time up for that and it works quite well. There is one flaw or soft underbelly if people higher up the elevator want some beautiful, unified, overall diagram of all of this stuff, 
this will not produce that. So either you have to produce that or in other places, point out the fact that you've gone for this autonomous teams, distributed architecture. So therefore you've kind of surrendered this beautiful, elegant, you know, we all use Kafka and we all do this kind of thing. There is a unified architectural blueprint because if you really want to get the benefit of all of this, then maybe your aspiration should be in that direction. But that's a flaw. If you need all this stuff for regulatory, you know, whatever, then you'd have to put the time in to do that because this isn't going to emerge naturally from the team. But all of the pieces to put in place to do that would be available to you. So. Yeah, the distributed architecture diagrams or documentation or ADRs, it's a feature, not a bug of this approach. Yeah, exactly. One of the things we see for microservices to be successful is people need to have the paved road, that you need to be this tall to use microservices. And there's all this stuff that needs to go around it. It sounds like the architecture forum is part of that paved road approach for architecture. We're going to set you up on success. And you said that you're a consultant, you come in, but your job is to make yourself redundant. Like, let me give you the platform. This becomes the platform. And then everyone just writes ADRs because that's the way we do things. Exactly. And it's kind of interesting. So if you read, I think it's in team topologies, they talk about platform teams and they talk about minimum viable platform for the team topologies guys. Minimum viable platform is, I think the minimum is a wiki with people to go and speak to because they've done this already. And I was like, that's an awesome idea. I'm not even sure. I think I refer to it in the article again, right? So this, like you say, is a minimum viable kind of set of approaches. And always we end up layering stuff on and adding things. And the AAF agenda adds pieces because people are like the mindset is in the right place. And so this, again, is like the learning is happening out in the open and the decisions, you know, you've got your principles, you've got your radar, you've got all of your kind of the standard stuff you think it's going to be. You've got your existing architecture. But then people are constantly kind of building on top of that and building in stuff. And so, for example, like say, if the infra people are there, they'll also get for the real paved road, right? They'll be hearing people doing stuff again and again, or the architects will be like, oh, they're doing it again and again. And then that's a good opportunity to say, right. So as an architect, I have suggested various things because we're like, we seem to be doing a lot of SQS integration. Do we think it's time for us to start, you know, putting Kafka in amongst all of this kind of stuff, right? And then you can introduce like a broader thing or API manager, right? API manager is the classic. We should put in API management. But you can introduce that as a topic and then see what people think about it and kind of go, okay, cool. So you're the person who would be taking the decision because, you know, no one single team because of their limited scope are going to say we need an API manager. But you can still use that process and use that kind of forum to get a feel for that kind of stuff. And you can then advocate for the fact that, you know, the combined pain of this team plus this team plus this team plus this team plus the fact that, you know, at some point this stuff's going to start tripping us up. And which is where things like the four key metrics are nice because you can then get teams thinking, they'll be thinking very specifically, but four key metrics makes them think more broadly and holistically. Those things combined can kind of help you drive and have far greater adoption and understanding and buy-in into these kind of core bigger piece things because you've got all this stuff, right? So it is, it's like minimum viable architecture is like it's happening and it's getting into prod, right? For me, it's like, you know, otherwise it's all irrelevant getting into prod, then the skills are building up, then the understanding of and desire for architecture comes up. And then you'll start to see people see common cause arising, people supporting each other, advice will be going back and forth and all this kind of stuff, right? And it drives out all of this stuff, all of this kind of collaboration sharing. I mean, it's like one client didn't want to call it an AF, so it was basically they call it the architecture guild. is an AF, right? But the nice bit, the guild bit, the discussion piece, all that kind of stuff. The only connotation I know of guilds is guilds are like, here's our little fiefdom. We decide all the rules and you have to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's like an architecture guild, but everybody's invited. So they're like, oh, actually, I'm doing architecture. I didn't think I'd be doing this. 
Yeah, choose the naming that fits your environment. But the big thing is, it's it's not where people go for approval. That's the thing I fight. There's a few things I'm like, right, we're this, we're not doing this. So that's the key thing. Every single client where I've done it, I'm like, right, this is going to happen. This is the key fact. If you're not comfortable with this, I still suggest strongly that we do it. And I would love to find out how we can experiment with it. Because some people are like, you're going to need to take me on a journey for this stuff. Other people are like, woohoo, this is spot on. This is exactly where our culture needs to be. So keeping that, but it goes back to the advice process. You know, everything else layers around about it. If you get that, that's how you kill it. If it stops being advice, it starts being approval. The one thing is two clients ago when we did it, I'm still in touch with the people who still do it after I left. It's two years old and it's still going and it's still thriving. They've changed it as it belongs to them. But one thing I don't know, so again, full disclosure, I haven't done this for five years and see what happens. There's nothing that makes me think it would rot and degrade, especially the fact we revisit the ADRs and we come back to stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And it evolves, but I can't tell you what it looks like four years and five years in the future because I haven't been there yet. Things will always evolve, right? Like in five more years, we're not going to be doing microservices. because will be the next thing after that. And we'll definitely be looking for changes. Well, unfortunately, that's about all the time we have for today's podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. We will, of course, have a link to Andrew's article in the show notes and all the other things we talked about. If this conversation is giving you some ideas or you have more questions, please write a comment on this episode by going to infoq.com slash podcast. I want to thank our guest once again, Andrew Harmala. Thanks very much. It was an awesome conversation. Just to Thomas's point, I'd really encourage feedback. I'd love to hear what people think. Good ideas, bad ideas, kick holes in it. I'd love to see what people think. And we hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of the InfoQ podcast.